Hello and welcome. You're listening to Epic Podcast, Emergency Preparedness in Canada. My name is Joshua. And I'm Grayson. The date is February 16th, 2018. And this is episode 13. And in case you haven't read it, episode on the recently released paper entitled Rising Waters, Difficult Decisions, Findings and Recommendations from the Calgary Flood Project. In this episode, we explore key concepts of risk communication and risk personalization through the eyes of those who lived through the 2013 Southern Alberta floods. And we're very lucky to have the author of the paper, Dr. Tim Haney, to discuss his findings and what they might mean for the management of future disasters. All this and more on this episode of Epic Podcast, Current, Relevant, Canadian. It's hard to believe that we're coming up on the five-year anniversary of the Southern Alberta floods. Uh, The June 19th, 2013 flood event, which caused the evacuation of 120,000 people, resulted in 32 separate state of local emergency declarations, activated 28 different EOCs, and, for a short while, uh, held the title of the costliest disaster in Canadian history. Uh, It also triggered some rapid changes in the emergency management landscape in Alberta. Yeah, a lot of these advancements are centered around government organization, flood mitigation and tracking, and they've resulted in a more robust infrastructure and EM capabilities. But despite these organizational changes, there's still a lot we can learn from examining the individual experiences of those impacted by disaster. To help us explore this perspective through his research, I'm happy to present an epic interview with Dr. Tim Haney, recorded December 1st, 2017. Hi, my name is Tim Haney, and I'm a sociologist at Mount Royal University in Calgary, and I direct the Center for Community Disaster Research at Mount Royal. My research looks at how people experience and recover from many disasters, and I've looked at these dynamics in Hurricane Katrina, the BP oil spill, the Southern Alberta flood, and more recently, the Fort McMurray wildfire. Uh, My interest was peaked in disasters uh, in 2005 when I was living in New Orleans during Hurricane Katrina, and I've been doing disaster research ever since. So um, I've been through many disasters in my life, and now I'm at the point where I figure if you can't beat them, join them. Dr. Haney, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Before I begin, can you tell us a little bit about the Center for Community Disaster Research? The Center for Community Disaster Research at Marlboro University is a transdisciplinary, interdisciplinary hub for research, uh, teaching, education, and outreach related to disasters of all kinds. We work very closely with community partner organizations in the public sector, private sector, governmental, non-governmental organizations. Uh, These partners help us design research projects, ask questions of us that we can then answer, and uh, they become the important uh, end users of our research as well. So they're involved from the beginning to the end of our research projects. We also, uh, I would add that we also uh, employ uh, undergraduate research assistants uh, to to work on our projects. And uh, that makes us sort of unique among disaster research centers in North America, because most are at large research universities. And uh, Mount Royal University is an all undergraduate institution where uh, undergrads take a key role in the research that we do. That's great. So within the Center for Community Disaster Research, you recently did a, uh, a project called Rising Waters, Difficult Decisions, Findings and Recommendations from the Calgary Flood Project. Um, and I'd love to talk to you about that. What, what is the Calgary Flood Project? Uh, sure. It's a, it's a project funded by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada. And uh, we wanted to find out, you know, throughout the temporal arc of, of the Southern Alberta Flood from beginning to end, how did people who were affected in Calgary experience the flood? So who evacuated? Who didn't? Um, how much risk did people perceive beforehand? Where did they go when they evacuated? Um, 
who was able to come back more quickly, who wasn't. Uh, how are people looking forward post-disaster, and how are they making decisions about where to live in the context of just having experienced a flood? So what we did is, uh, with a team of research assistants, we selected a sample of 1,500 households uh, in the 26 neighborhoods that were affected by the flood in Calgary. Uh, we did this randomly by selecting a set number of households per neighborhood, and we wanted to make sure it was proportionate to each neighborhood's population. We numbered each block and then numbered each house. Uh, using a random number generator, we then picked the number of houses that we that we needed per block. Uh, we mailed them a survey in June of 2014, so this is uh, about a year after the flood. For those who didn't respond, we visited all of the homes on foot, and uh, as you can imagine, we dodged a lot of angry dogs along the way. Uh, in in the end, we have a sample of several hundred flood-affected residents um, from those 26 neighborhoods. And then we also did in-depth interviews, uh, which generated qualitative data with 40 flood-affected residents as well. So we have, you know, just a wealth of, of data on flood-affected Calgarians. I could probably, at this point, completely check out of collecting data for about five or ten years. Yeah, and uh, there's a lot to learn just from alone. Wow. So quite the project. What, what did you find? Well, in terms of, let's start early in the, in the disaster process. Um, so talking about risk perception, this is probably where some of the most interesting and counterintuitive findings occurred. And so we found that uh, two-thirds of Calgarians who were living in these 26 flood-affected neighborhoods didn't know that their homes and neighborhoods were at risk of flooding prior to the 2013 flood. Now, you know, a critic or a skeptic could say, sure, but many of those houses didn't, in fact, flood, and they're right. So the other way you can cut this is you can look at it and say, well, okay, how about of those whose homes actually flooded? Because now we know those homes were at risk of flooding. And of the homes that actually flooded, um, of residents who had homes that flooded, more than half, nevertheless, were still not aware that their homes were at risk uh, beforehand. So of those who flooded, half were caught off guard during the 2013 flood. Um, which is not at all what I expected going into it. You mentioned um, in your paper this ostrich effect. Can you expand on that? Yeah, so the, the ostrich effect, I didn't, I didn't come up with that term. It's in the literature, but uh, it's this idea that we can, you know, we can know cognitively, we can know that there's risk. But what we do is we bury our heads in the sand, much like an ostrich, um, because we feel like maybe there's very little we can do about it or we're, you know, placing a mental bet that it won't happen during our lifetime or while we own that home. Um, and so we can know there's risk, but we try emotionally not to, not to deal with that risk. But in terms of the risk perception piece of it from this project, I think a couple things are going on. I think, first of all, many people who flooded didn't know that a flood as severe and as widespread as the 2013 flood could ever happen. So it caught them off guard because they had never thought their house could potentially flood. And so how did this this awareness affect their decision to evacuate or affect their sort of mitigation strategies as well? So evacuation was another surprise piece. And uh, so what we found is that 35% of residents um, did not know that they were under an evacuation order until a public official knocked on their door. That's how more than a third of residents found out about the evacuation. Uh, it wasn't through social media. You know, it wasn't through TV or radio. It was very much when that police officer, emergency manager, firefighter, whoever it was, knocked on their door and told them they needed to leave. Many, in fact, even at the time of survey, never knew that they were under an evacuation order, even if they were. 
so some never heard the message, um, while many among those who had heard it uh, didn't evacuate anyway. In fact, of those who told us that they had heard the evacuation order and, know, and knew that they were supposed to evacuate, a full 33%, one-third, didn't evacuate anyway. Um, and that was, again, surprising because it's, it's very far away from an emergency manager's ideal where you hope for a full, relatively immediate and complete evacuation. Um, you know, and it's not that the message, you know, certainly didn't reach some people, but even among those who the order reached, a full third still didn't evacuate. So, um, you know, the missing piece isn't just communication. It's also, you know, uh, generating that sense of urgency. And this gets into why people didn't evacuate. And our participants told us that, by and large, um, they didn't evacuate for a variety of reasons. Uh, the largest group wanted said that they wanted to wait and see how bad it was going to be before they made a decision to evacuate or not. So... These, the order is coming from the folks who have the best information available, and yet residents are not necessarily trusting that they have the best information available. Um, residents are trusting their own perception of when it's time to evacuate. Many people said things like, uh, I never believed it could be so bad. I didn't realize how critical it was. Uh, I lived in an upper floor, so I didn't think I needed to evacuate. Um, some folks said things like, well, the power wasn't out, so I wasn't going to evacuate. Uh, and, in fact, also said stuff like, uh, I enjoyed seeing the community preparing and evacuating, so I wanted to hang back and, and watch that. Or some said things like, I was just chilling, um, which, of course, like I mentioned, is pretty far from an emergency manager's ideal. Was there any misunderstanding around whether or not the, the evacuation order was mandatory? Uh, they didn't talk about that, actually. Most, most people seemed to feel like they heard the evacuation order and knew that they needed to leave, but nevertheless filtered that evacuation order through, you know, friends and family and, you know, thought about, well, do I have a place to go and do they accept pets and, um, you know, is the, is the river really going to rise that high and these sorts of things. And so even when they understand that it's mandatory, they make a series of decisions and a number of factors go into whether they decide to evacuate or not. So um, it's, it's very complicated. Yeah, where where do people turn to for information, if not the official evacuation message? Well, I mean, as we found, the, the most common way that people found out about the evacuation order was when someone knocked on the door. That's not ideal because that's, you know, there we're talking about a resource-intensive, uh, time-intensive kind of evacuation, if that's how people are learning about it. I thought social media would be huge. I thought that people would have gotten a lot of information from social media, and, and they certainly did and, and might have. But what we found was a very small proportion of people, I believe it was 8% of people who heard the evacuation order, heard it first through social media. You know, by and large, when someone knocked on their door, followed by hearing it from family and friends. So it was very much the face-to-face -face contact. It wasn't through social media. So again, you know, while following a disaster on social media is certainly better than receiving no information at all, I'm left sort of unconvinced that it's a useful tool for, you know, making that first contact with residents, encouraging them to evacuate, um, that sort of thing. That, in this disaster, seemed to be very much done through knocking on doors and face-to-face -face contact. What other effects did the flood have on, on individuals and their risk perception and, and their lives afterwards? So uh, we asked a number of questions about how people experienced evacuation. And 
uh, what we found was that people tended to use their social networks, so family and friends, who were situated within the city of Calgary uh, to find accommodation during the evacuation. Uh, it was statistically very uncommon for evacuated residents to find shelter outside of the city, um, so to go to surrounding communities, and it was very uncommon to use designated evacuation or reception centers, which parallels with what I have been hearing from the city that uh, uh, evacuation reception centers were were not heavily utilized during the flood. We know that uh, among evacuated residents, the average length of evacuation was about 12 and a half days, but this is for all participants. And if you look only at those who flooded, it's much longer. It was about 29 days that people were evacuated uh, on average before they before they were able to return home. Um, but that's an average, and it's also, you know, there's quite a few outlying cases where people were gone a lot longer. So certainly a lot longer than the reception centers were open. Um, yeah. where, how did people cope with this uh, long time away from their homes? Where did they turn to financially and for social support? Sure. Um, so of course, one of the ones that got one of the sources of of assistance that got talked about a lot was the uh, the province's disaster recovery program. Uh, this was a bit surprising. We found that uh, few residents had their losses covered by uh, by the provincial disaster recovery program. In fact, of those who flooded, uh, I found that only 42% uh, even applied to the DRP to begin with. Of those who applied for DRP assistance. Uh, the average losses that were covered by the DRP were somewhere around 38%. Um, so, again, a majority of losses still not covered by by the DRP. And in fact, insurance, as we know, overland flooding at the time wasn't covered by uh, wasn't covered by private insurance. And so, uh, people reported a very small portion of losses covered by insurance. Usually, just cases of sewer backup. The overland portion of it was typically not covered. Um, Many residents did talk about getting assistance from Red Cross and from sources like that, um, but by and large, it was it was more of a self-funded disaster than many other events that uh, that I've seen. Why do you think that was? Was it a sense of community? Was it a lack of awareness of these assistance programs? What was the reason for that? Um, it was a, it was a lack. Well, in the DRP case, it was a lack of awareness, um, but it was also uh, you know we asked people why they hadn't applied to DRP, and a lot of people said. I didn't think that I would qualify, and so I thought, well, that's strange. Um, let me let me you know cross tabulate that by whether or not someone's home flooded, and a lot of the folks who said that they didn't think that they would qualify for the DRP did have flooded homes. So I found that very strange because, as far as I know, they they would have qualified for the program, but a lot of people didn't think that they that they would qualify. Um, a lot of others just said, you know, I thought it was going to be. A hassle, or other people needed the money more than I did, uh, those sorts of things. Um, but you know, in terms of why people leaned on family and friends, certainly I think it's a strong community, and I think that uh, that the flood brought out the best in Calgarians. Wow! So of those people that did have to evacuate for extended periods of time and experience the flood firsthand, did their risk perception change? Do they now understand? that they're in a danger area? You know, I did. I just did an article, this is not from the report, but from a different paper, I just did an article uh, on, uh, on worry and about future mobility plans, uh, you know, where residents plan to be living moving forward. And one of the things I found was that uh, one of the key predictors was worry about future floods affecting their neighborhood. So the worry that people experience does translate into plans to leave in many cases. 
But what was really interesting about it was that experiencing the flood for some strengthened attachment to their neighborhoods and made them more likely to say that they wanted to stay where they were. For others, it loosened attachment and uh, and made them sort of want to leave. And the key factor was prior to the flood, how many um, you know how many neighbors did people know by name? How civically engaged were they? Uh, you know, like in their community association or whatnot. Uh, and those who had those strong networks were more likely to say, this is a great place to live and I'm staying. And those who didn't have those net- networks beforehand um, tended to see their networks for even more, but then tended to also say, I plan to leave because I don't want to go through this again and so on. So the the social network piece, the social capital piece is so important for determining who's going to, who's going to leave and who's going to stay and for you know, determining what a neighborhood's going to look like moving forward after a disaster. So this this song about not being aware and not understanding what the risks were. This is a this is common across all sorts of disasters. How can we change that? Yeah, it's so common. You know, one of the things that we found is that our findings around risk perception paralleled some work that had just been done by uh, Jason Thistlewaite and colleagues. Uh, he's out at the uh, University of Waterloo, and they did a report this past spring, and it was a survey of Canadians living in flood-prone places, and they found a shockingly high percentage, a majority, I think it was over 70% of people living in flood-prone places didn't actually know that they were at risk of flooding. And that was just quite surprising to me that it was that high. It parallels what we found in Calgary, but uh, there seems to be a big knowledge gap, or if it's not a knowledge gap, it's a gap in willingness to acknowledge um, flood risk. But I think a couple of things have to have to happen. You know, home buyers need to become aware uh, that they're purchasing a home in a flood-prone area, a flood-prone neighborhood. Um, now, could there be a role there for the real estate industry, for example? Um, yes, but I think there would need to be rules that they would have to, that it would be mandatory to disclose location in, uh, in a floodway or flood-fringe area to potential buyers. Uh, the other thing, too, I would say is if evacuations were called, in a way that people could have face-to-face contact with somebody that they know or trust rather than, you know, hearing it over the radio, TV, internet from public officials. So, you know, if, if communities had community liaisons where somebody from the community went knocking on doors to make that face-to-face contact, well, that would be a much less resource-intensive way for public officials to do it because they wouldn't have to send you know, professional personnel, first responders to people's doors to knock on doors to get folks to evacuate. So there's different models that could be used to do it, but um, having locals who are trained, who can have those conversations, encourage people to leave, um, could be a much more efficient way to do it. What other recommendations did you uh, come up with from your report? So one of our recommendations is that when provincial governments launch disaster recovery programs, they should do whatever they can to let infected folks know about the program's availability. You know, we found an underutilization of the DRP in Alberta. But also, I think government agencies should ensure that uh, people who need to have free mental health services available for affected residents, um, our participants reported a significant disruption to their feelings of security and stability in their surroundings, uh, to their marriages and romantic relationships. Um, some people reported uh, disruption to their children and reported some problems with their children coping. Uh, these issues are common in post-disaster communities, 
and they could be addressed by more widely available and accessible mental health care, and I think that's an important piece that should happen. Dr. Tim Haney, thank you so much for participating in this epic interview. Uh, I'm very excited to see what the CCDR comes out with next. Thanks so much. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. So it sounds like a great conversation there, Grayson. What stood out most to you about the uh, interview? Yeah, there were a lot of kind of important things that he went over, starting at first from the, the sort of risk personalization and risk awareness side of things. And as we discovered, you know, Calgarians in general didn't really have a very high level of awareness when it came to the flood risk. And this is not just true of Calgarians. This is true of, of all Canadians, as it turns out. In a recent article entitled uh, Canadian Voices on Changing Flood Risk by Jason Thistlewaite and Henstra, as well as Sean Peddle and Daniel Scott, it was found that uh, as, as many as maybe 6% of mm. Canadians actually know that they're in flood-prone areas. And really, it's not their fault. There's a lot of um, sort of gaps when it comes to flood mm. and hazard mapping in general. So that was really interesting, and I thought that was representative of, of Canada in this one isolated uh, incident. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a few issues there. You're right, the one, the one being the hazard maps and the actual technical knowledge of knowing who's uh, risk prone and who isn't. And then there's what to do with that information. And, and we know that's one of the struggles for emergency managers is how do you communicate risk effectively? And, and how do you get somebody to actually understand that they've got a certain level of risk and what it means in relation to all the other risks that uh, are involved uh, with day-to-day -day life? Um, and getting somebody to act based on risk is, is the million dollar question. Yeah, and that was really present when he was talking about the evacuation uh, alerting and even when it was a mandatory uh, authority driven evacuation alert people still didn't really pay attention kind of like one of those disaster myths really i mean we you as emergency managers we like to think that people may heed our our warnings and uh, you know you get an official disaster alert with instructions and um it's it's surprising the responses that you get there's been a lot of research into this and risk communication is a whole separate field uh, uh, a lot of work, uh, especially within wildfire research and other kind of um, disciplines, but uh, a lot of researchers have found recurrent themes in terms of what type of risk actually motivates action. And two of the big categories being something called dread risk versus unknown risk. So dread risk is the really scary things that tend to motivate people's actions. So something like radiation that just sounds terrible and, and scary. People have a lot of dread uh, associated with it. And then the unknown risk being things where people don't know a lot about the specific hazard. And both of those motivators uh, uh, can um, kind of combine in interesting ways. Uh, there's a lot of work that's also been done around trust in, in terms of crisis communications and people are more likely to have more unknown risk if they've got um, uh, concerns about the trustworthiness of the information. So, for example, you know, evil uh, oil companies uh, with uh, oil spills and things like that, people are more weary about uh, the information uh, they, they might receive and that can impact their, their choices. But uh, risk personalization as, uh, as a concept is, uh, uh, I think, a really important thing for us as emergency managers to have a handle on. Yeah, that credibility and motivation of action was pretty present when he talked about the door knocking mm -hmm. as really the only thing that got people to leave. Yeah. And what I thought was really interesting is that not even five years later in the New Brunswick ice storms of January 2017, that again was sort of proven wrong. There is no one-stop shop for uh, motivating action in, in crisis. So in, in the case of the ice storms, mm -hmm. uh, door knocking was not 
as effective because there was this you know unknown dread risk of looting and of people breaking into the houses so the most vulnerable populations who had sort of isolated themselves in the houses uh, didn't answer the door to authority mm -hmm. figures who were pounding on the door just trying to find out if they were okay yeah there's been some work done in uh, bc as well by robert uh, gifford and some of his colleagues at uh, university of victoria looking at risk and, and people's understanding of risk and uh they looked at different groups uh, in relation to their earthquake risk based on if your house is on really soft soil or really firm soil and the homeowners knowing that they were objectively at different uh, um, degrees of risk and had different uh, exposures. Um, but subsequently, it didn't seem to uh, necessarily internalize that risk concept. So a bit of a disconnect between the objective and, and subjective uh, understanding. And this leads to uh, people finding different places of risk homeostasis yeah that gap between risk awareness and risk personalization can sometimes seem a little insurmountable one of the interesting things that i found when i got to actually meet dr tim haney uh, a few weeks after this interview as you can tell this interview was not done in person so i apologize for the sound quality that was my fault uh, but when i did get to meet him i asked if the purpose of this project was to discuss risk personalization with risk awareness or to evaluate the effectiveness of evacuation orders. And it turns out that's not what he set out to do. But that's the sort of information he found out anyway through this, this sociological lens, which I thought was, was awesome, a sort of confirmation of, of some of the, the well-known disaster theory. Yeah, I think the ethnographic approach is, is useful in, in trying to understand it from people's individual perspectives. Definitely how we study risk from different, you know, academic backgrounds, um, we tend to sometimes get different uh, conclusions. You know, the way an engineer might examine risk in terms of, you know, fragility curves and, and resilience and those sort of things might be different than the sociological approach. And I think having um, kind of a 360 um, uh, tactic and trying to, uh, you know, ask these questions from different backgrounds is quite helpful. And on that note, if you want to find out more about the Center for Community Disaster Research, I would point you towards the Mount Royal University uh, website where you can search for the Center of Community Disaster Research and you'll find some great pictures of Dr. Tim Haney, uh, some ways to get involved, whether you're a student or an emergency management professional, there's even the opportunity to host a student intern. So a great uh, resource to check out and certainly uh, a great initiative. But that's all we have uh, the time for for today. So a big thanks to Tim Haney for sharing his time and expertise with us in this In Case You Haven't Read It episode on Rising Waters, Difficult Decisions, reading it so you don't have to. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to an epic podcast production, a proud partner of IAEM Canada, the International Association of Emergency Managers. As always, EPIC podcasts are designed as a supplementary educational tool for the EM professional, and the views and opinions explored during this podcast do not in any way represent the agencies or organizations that we or our guests may be a part of. For more information about the show or the people on it, visit our website at epicpodcast.ca or follow us on Twitter by searching EPIC Podcast. And finally, a big thank you to all of our contributors and to you, our listeners. Please stay tuned for the next episode of EPIC Podcast current, relevant, Canadian.